Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. I was putting out educational content online and the stuff that I did was having such a huge impact around the globe, like people watching it, getting out of pain. That's what I loved in business. Turning around a company is about making change to people on an individual level, right? It's getting them to step outside of what they think is possible and and seeing that they can accomplish. You start doing this stuff one-on-one and that's what changes an organization. And so that's what I loved about it. And like, this is where I need to go. I need to shift my entire life around helping people focus on development of resilience. Welcome to the Mark Devine Show. I am your host, Mark Devine. Super stoked to have you here with me today. Thank you for joining me. On the Mark Devine Show, I dive in and discover and discuss what makes the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders so courageous and fearless. Talk in-depth to people from all walks of life, martial arts grandmaster, monks, CEOs, military leaders, stoic philosophers, proud survivors of the craziest things. And each of our episodes turns our guest experience into actionable insights that you can follow and use to lead a life filled with compassion and courage. Today, I'm excited to interview Chris Duffin. We're going to be talking about mindset, resilience, and overcoming insurmountable odds. And Chris is the only man in the world to squat and deadlift a thousand times for three reps each. That's incredible. He's one of the strongest men in the world, pound for pound, and he's an incredible entrepreneur and teacher. He co-founded Kabuki Strength, where he's the chief visionary officer. And he's, as you'll discuss or learn in the podcast, he's invented multiple game-changing products used by, I mean, 90% plus of NFL and Major League Baseball teams. Chris has invented multiple game-changing products, improving human biomechanics under load, as well as systematized approaches to assessing and correcting human movement dysfunctions. Interestingly, Chris was also raised in a very dysfunctional and chaotic environment, which he tells about in his book, The Eagle and a Dragon, where he talks about growing up homeless and uh, overcoming all the challenges and learning how to deal with rattlesnakes and serial killers and extreme poverty, and finally raising his actual three siblings because his parents kind of lost the capacity to do that. Chris, thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Mark Devine Show. Your book, The Eagle and the Dragon, you talk about your life story, and I think that's a great place to start. But you know, so give us the lowdown and what your childhood was like, and you know, what were some of the major forces that shaped who you are and got you into strength and conditioning? Yeah, so definitely grew up a little bit different. I always try to frame it as not necessarily saying it's hard or was harder, and certainly not like harder than anybody else's life. We all have our own struggles and strife, but. It's a great way to articulate just how far you can move the needle in life because yeah. I did grow up homeless. It was my parents' choice that they didn't want to be part of society and were trying to, you know, forge a path outside of that. And so we were in the mountains in Northern California and this is living in tents, living in tree forts. People are like, why tree forts? Well, here in Carlsbad, but there's a lot of rattlesnakes and you get a little up into those northern area. And so they, we'd have rattlesnake dens by our house. So that's actually how my book starts out is me at six years old. You know, we've got beams lashed up into the trees. That's where we're, we're sleeping. And I'm being taught how to capture and handle live rattlesnakes at six years old. And you're like, why? Well, they were part of my life. They were, uh, they were around me. I needed to know how to protect right. myself. Right. That's fascinating. So you actually lived in the trees. Your, your dad built like what platforms to live in or what is that? What was that like? 
Uh, yeah, at that time, you know, you'd take three trees and kind of make a, a triangle. So you'd lash three beams between those. Okay. You know, that's where our sleeping was. But that was uh, more of a rare instance. Like I said, there was rattlesnake dens, like, just right all over the place hmm. in that area. But a lot of times it was either tents or during the school year, we'd move closer to town and we'd be, you know, in houses or sometimes a condemned home. Actually, I think not too long after that, we were in a condemned home for like a year. No electricity, no running water, no doors, just a, you know, a frame of a house that was abandoned, Wow, you know, decades before. But sometimes it was, you know, later in life in Oregon, we spent a series of years in some cabins that were like hunting cabins. Mm -hmm. They had electricity, might not have had like running water or toiletry or anything like that. So it was heated by fire. But yeah, a lot of my life grew up, you know, it was by candlelight, flashlight stepping out the back of a cabin to you know bathe by pouring water over myself in the snow during the summer was great because you could we'd fill up uh, all our jugs down in the stream right and then set them out on a rock all day in the uh in the sun and just let those heat up and then late afternoon you could have a, a great uh shower you know taking the gallon jug over your <laughs> over your head so uh, awesome. but uh it was interesting in that fashion because it's like you find out that there's a lot of unsavory characters that maybe are away from society because they had reasons to not be around it, not for the right. reasons like my parents of trying to uh, just to make her own way. And so during the course of that, yeah, I mean, dealt with murderers. There was a serial killer. And actually in California, there was uh, dealt with uh, human trafficking. So if you ever have the opportunity to watch the uh, documentary Murder Mountain on Netflix, that was a 50 miles away from one of the areas we spent a couple of years. So when it's talking about serial killers and human trafficking and corrupt police and all this sort of stuff, you'd be like, holy cow, that's the life that we lived. And so we were taken by the state for a while. Me, my three sisters, younger sisters and my younger brother, my parents got us back. You know, we were living in Northern California. They were growing weed. Like that's what they, we lived out in the mountains. Were they good parents to you? I mean, did you perceive them to be good? I mean, what was the parenting like? Besides, you know, what society would say of them dragging you around without a house. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of things or perceptions that could be had around that. But we were very close. You know, it was us against the world. And it was really there's a lot of bonds around that. And we had a lot more time to spend together. Right. You know, but I was out helping cut wood. I was out like I was working with them all the time. I was the one if they were out doing something that I couldn't be involved with. I was the one at home or at camp taking care of my sisters and my brother. And we read. My parents were really well read and always involved in discussions around politics or science or some avenue. So we we're always reading books and learning. We didn't have TV. Maybe we did every now and again, like a little battery. I remember this little thing that was like, yay big. So for Pearson, you know, like a little seven inch screen with some batteries. But <laughs> we would go to the library and just get massive stacks of books. And that's, that's cool. I said, candlelight and flashlight, because that's what every evening was sitting there reading. And then there was always a big push on the, the intellectual side, which is why I ended up doing, I think pretty well in school. Did you go to traditional school or were they homeschooling you? Uh, went to traditional school. Okay. Right on. That was interesting. I mean, that was challenging for me just because I was always moving. You know, you show up to school, your clothes aren't clean. You might smell funny. Definitely not in style. <laughs> let alone like the, 
you know, the internal drama that's going on in your mind going, I'm the kid living in the trailer down by the river. And you think everybody knows this stuff about you and it's judging you. And so I can't say that I had the best childhood, you know, going to school as a result of that. But by the time high school hit, I really, I think I was starting to come into my own. I was realizing a lot of confidence because I, I was raised in a very physical environment. We were doing things all the time. And again, I was so well-read. I was years ahead in school. And so by the time I, I hit high school, I was starting to develop a lot of confidence in, in those arenas. And so I, I ended up excelling in both sports and at academics. So I was you know, valedictorian. I was a state-level athlete. I was doing pretty good at that point in time, except still maybe a little socially awkward, probably, I guess, it, you know, as a result of that. <laughs> right. Where do you bring the girl home when you don't have a home? <laughs> exactly. So high school, it was actually the first time we had a stable environment. So my stepfather, all this time that he had been raising me, which was my entire life, he'd had a broken arm and he was running a chainsaw, feeding crops, doing all this sort of stuff with a broken arm. And it just kept wearing away. And he finally got a disability suit, got a few thousand dollars and put a down payment on a mobile home. So that happened like, at the end of my freshman year in high school. So all through college or high school, for those three years, we didn't move. I had the same place. We had electricity, we had running water, and we had to throw plastic over the windows because they, you know, it was cold and the wind would blow right through and it didn't have doors in the house. So hung up bed sheets for the bathroom and bedrooms and didn't have a kitchen. So, you know, got some two by fours and threw something up to put a sink on. And then, you know, just stacked everything else all around the floor. <laughs> but it was, it was a solid, stable place. It was a home. And that was the first, you know, long period like that in my life at that point. So what sports did you get into in high school? Well, the most interesting one is probably that anybody that has an idea of my lifting background is that I did cross country. <laughs> I was like right? the, one of the largest cross country runners in the state. And this is not the one, one of the ones where I was a state level. I was like the worst person on our team by far. Uh, all the girls outran me. I was a big lumbering guy, but uh, I was getting in shape for wrestling. Right. That was the one I really excelled at. I didn't start that till my freshman year. So I didn't have like a long history like a lot of wrestlers would. Mm -hmm. I was horrible my freshman year. I lost every match the entire season up until the last two matches i finally won two but by my senior year i went all the way through districts all the way through state all the way up to the final match without even having a single offensive point scored against me no kidding and then uh, i end up losing to the three-time state champion head game because i got too cocky and made some uh some moves that i basically lost the match myself which was unfortunate but Track and field was uh, the mm -hmm. third one I was in. Okay. Yeah, district level. I wasn't state level there. I didn't understand like specificity. Yeah. So like I ran the 100, the 200, the 400, the 800, the 1500, the 3000. <laughs> I did I did long jump, shot put, javelin. Discus. There must have been a small I team. <laughs> I did everything. And so I was pretty good at it, everything, but I didn't understand specialization because I was like, you know, at the 400, I was running the mid, the mid fifties. Like if I just dropped a couple seconds off, all of a sudden you're like, you're way up there. But I was also running the 3000. So it's like, I... <laughs> that's interesting. It's interesting. That your coach didn't nudge it toward a little bit well, more. The, the coach actually nudged. He had this Ironman principle. He encouraged and he had like a separate word for people that like 
made it through and competed in like everything in a season. And that was like kind of the approach that I took and wasn't necessarily the, uh, the best, but it gave me a lot of exposure and I was pretty good at most of those things. That's cool. So how, how did you get exposed to traditional weightlifting? I got exposed to weightlifting during the course. So junior high, it was the typical boy moving into teens. For me, I had a lot of self-confidence issues. I picked up some ankle weights down at the used goods store for with some uh, money I'd earned from mowing lawns. And then I scoured the nickel ads and bought some of those plastic cement covered weights. The first year I just like... Wait, were they cement covered plastic or plastic covered cement? The cement covered plastic ones with like the little hollow steel bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember those. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like cement dumbbell type things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So I started just doing like with jump squats and push-ups and running with the ankle weights and then was making money from uh, mowing lawns, started investing those weights. And it was 1988. I think I was like 13 years old, 12 years old when I started lifting. And then in high school, continued actually learning a little bit more about lifting, taking uh, PE classes with my track coach, who was a Olympic caliber, Olympic throw discus thrower back in the day okay. and shot putter. So he knew a lot about weightlifting. And that just became part of my life. Like I started building a lot of confidence. It started having just like this big impact on me from a, a mental, mm -hmm. emotional perspective. And it just, it was just something that became part of me. And it was like, for me, it's time I balanced it because I was, I was the nerd. I was the straight A student that knew everything. Like I said, I, I read all the time and it was the balance to that. And my stepfather was really encouraging of it because he used to be an athlete back in the day. He was an artist, used to lift weights and he loved that and always encouraged this behavior of like doing things with your hands, mm -hmm. being an individual that isn't just, you know, a thinker, but can actually do something with their back as well. Mm -hmm. And so it was that type of mentality was encouraged quite some time. My mom was uh, actually a really incredible athlete. That's actually where I think my genetics came from uh, is my mom's side, not my father's side. So that became just a huge piece of mine. And I took a little bit of a break while I was going to college. Then I went right back to it. So maybe there was like a year and a half in the late 90s that I didn't lift. Mm -hmm. And then I got into competitive lifting in 2000. So that's, uh, yeah, just been with me forever. That's fascinating. I'd love to talk a little bit about why you think weightlifting makes, you know, leads to increased confidence. You know, it's more than just getting strong. There's certainly the spillover effect of, hey, I'm stronger, therefore I'm more confident. But there's, you know, something to do with the focus, the concentration power, you know, just getting under load. What do you think is going on in terms of why it makes you more confident? It's one of those things where it teaches you that disciplined action over time is going to yield results. Right. If I put in effort and I know that I've done this, no one can deny the fact that I'm physically stronger. I'm a more resilient person. I can see the changes in my body and it's just, it's really empowering. I work quite a bit with Special Olympians. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever worked with them, weightlifting, it's actually one of the most powerful things that you can do for them because so many times they're used to having you know, doing something and it's like, it's the raw, raw, you're doing great. Yeah. But no one has to like, they know it's real. Yeah. And also the implications is it also helps them live a better quality of life to some level as you develop that. But it's real and it's massive to see 
the transition that goes on when you're working with Special Olympians over you know period of time and, and they see the results. They know that they're making improvement. It's really crazy to see that overseeing their participation in other activities. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's really cool. Getting back to your question, you know, like for me specifically in that arena of time. Yeah. I think it does relate to building the confidence of knowing that your actions can lead to change, that you have control over your body, that you can start seeing, like, I have a plan in place. You know, here's the next three months. You start learning concepts like project management, you know, for example, like here's where I'm going to go. You develop a plan, you follow through on the plan. Maybe you, you went into some problems along the way, but you overcome them right? and you work around that. And so you discover your ability to manage through, let's say failure results that aren't the desired outcome that you can still come back around and make those change. I think weightlifting as a whole can tell you so much about life. Yeah. And we miss that connection. You know, we just go to the gym. Oh, this is a thing that I need to do. Right. Right. The high powered business executive that comes in and they, they're flailing around. Their trainers got to get them dialed in. It's like, dude, you know how to manage a plan over time and, <laughs> and how to set expectations and follow through and things don't happen quite, you know, you know, all this stuff, execute it here. Then you also see the person that does so much in the gym, right? They've been there for years. They've had amazing results. They understand training, planning, all this sort of stuff, the mental aspects of it, but they're a failure in their work life. And it's like, dude, you know how to do all this. Take how you approach the gym, the mental aspect of it, and shift that over to these other parts of your life. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. People miss those connections. I they miss them. Well, there's, it's almost like a learned incompetence. And I agree. I, mean, I had a CrossFit gym for 10 years and you know, the strength training for us was just a big part of it. I mean, I could have guys who were there for five or six years and they, every time they come in, they acted like they'd never seen a weight before. <laughs> You've had that too. And like, I have to show you how to do a deadlift again and again and again and again. And why don't you, you know, aren't you picking up on this? And it's just this feeling of it's not my arena. So therefore I don't remember anything. I'm not planning. I'm just going to be told what to do. I think that's one of the flaws of a lot of coaches is, is they actually are okay with that because they're getting paid. But you know, I would fire people. Like, You're not serious about this. So I don't uh, have that experience because I wouldn't work with anybody like that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I was not that smart. I consider it uh, that person needs a dog trainer. Right. They need somebody to hold the leash and take them for a walk. I believe that strength training should be empowering. Yeah. And you should be leading someone towards not needing you. And I'm talking about this as a trainer, as a physical therapist, as a chiropractor, anybody that's working in these fields, like, the individual has the largest piece of power in overcoming and making the change to their body, overcoming pain, all these sorts of things. And, and your job is to provide the education, the direction. You know, it takes three things. That's it. Those three things is, you know, the right methodology, the right tools, and the right mindset. Mm-hmm. That's what a gym should be, those three things. And, uh, and you teach that and people can, they can own everything. Hey, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. When I read in the show notes, you're one of the few people, if not the only person who's done a thousand pound deadlift for repetition. And I didn't know that was a thing, but that's pretty cool. 
one other person has done that now. So uh, Thor, okay, from uh, Game of Thrones, he's done a. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, he did uh, a thousand pounds for two, but he hasn't done a thousand pound squat either. So I'm the only person that squatted a thousand pounds and deadlifted a thousand pounds. Not a specialist, and I've done both for reps. And the deadlift is the standing uh, Guinness World Record. How many reps did you do those? Both of them for three reps. Three reps. That's pretty extraordinary. So that to have that kind of muscular stamina under that load is. That's the unique aspect about that, right? Because usually it's one and done. You're just done. There is a methodology to that. So okay. you know, what I teach is all about, it's around your body, right? So it's how do we best use it? How do we overcome pain? How do we, what are the principles? And so from a principle-based approach, I look at what has the largest global impact on the body. Mm-hmm. The thing that has the largest global impact is going to be your ability to manage your ability to to manage and control your spinal mechanics. Second one behind that is the foot, which is why I have a a shoe company and produce a lot of education around the foot. And then we can start breaking down. So a lot of my education is around breathing and bracing mechanics. What better way to articulate that than the squat and the deadlift? Two basic primal movements. The squat is one, if you understand from a developmental kinesiology standpoint, like our first nine months as a child is learning these ingrained patterns in our head that are in everybody's nervous system. And it starts progressing, you know, from rolling positions to crawling to standing. And then that's eventually basically us able to move into the squat position and be able to squat. It's fundamentally in everybody's neurology. So every able-bodied person should be able to do this. And under load, managing the spinal mechanics becomes, it demonstrates that. Mm -hmm. Deadlift is literally being able to pick something up off the ground. Right. Fundamental, every able-bodied person should be able to master picking up something from the ground. Mm-hmm. And so, again, these are the two most demanding. So I, that's where I chose that I wanted to go just over the top. I want to do a thousand pounds for both of these. And I want to do it for reps. And the reps piece was doing it for a longer period of time puts more demand on the ability to control those resources. So for me, three reps on a squat is about 30 seconds. That's incredible time to have that weight sitting on your back and controlling it through all of that way more than just one repetition would be. Mm -hmm. The other reasons uh, behind the, I call this the grand goals. I spent five years on, on it. The biggest piece too is, uh, is the inspiration. So one is demonstrate walking the walk, showing that the principles that I teach, what you can accomplish with those but the inspirational side is also just going shooting for something that is just so nobody's ever done it. It's crazy. If I told people what I was going to do beforehand, I'd have been told I was crazy. There's no way you can do it. And just showing people that if you set your mind to it, you can pull off things that people think are impossible. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And then the last one was charity. So during those five years, I did a lot of feats of strength related to that as I built through that charity fundraisers for a lot of things that I believe in. That is really neat. I applaud you for that. I have a, a, a connection to that, but it's not strength related. But, you know, for as a SEAL, we like burpees because we didn't always have access to equipment. Right? So wherever you go, there's your burpee traveling companion. <laughs> so uh, I started a program called Burpees for Vets. And in 2017 into 18 or 18 into 19, actually, we did a 22 million burpees, my tribe. And so that required guys like me. I did 130,000 in the year and others did, you know, around 100,000. I had a six-person team. We had our world record was six people 
three men, three women doing burpees for 24 hours. And we did 36,393 burpees. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> when you think of that, you're like, no, it's not possible to do 36,000 burpees in 20. But yeah, it is. You know, you, you would understand this, but from the moment we started to the moment we end, nothing changed. Our pace was consistent because it was, it was all mindset. It was all intention. We knew we were going to do it and we just went and did it. It's awesome. So you raised money for charity and, that, and then you moved out of that competition kind of and, and also demonstration phase into business. So what was that transition like? Or were you doing business kind of while you were doing the powerlifting? Yeah. So that's a discussion I'll, I'll taper back a little ways because uh, you, know, you talk about weightlifting, feats of strength, people are like, oh, that encompasses who you are. I mentioned things were rough growing up. Mm -hmm. I went to college. And during the course of going to college, I took custody and raised my three younger sisters. Oh, really? What happened there? When I left the home, the first you know year and a half, two years of college, things that went south at home. So I had some sort of stabilizing force. I should have assumed so. I actually quit calling home because I was going to college, was working. And every time I'd show up or make a call, I'd get requests for money. I'd have to give them money. And so I'm like, well, I just need to focus. And so I didn't contact as much. And things just went south. My mother had a mental breakdown, ended up out in Montana. Stepfather continued a descent into uh, mental illness. And my sisters, they were very young, ended up on the streets. And so I took custody and I raised the three of them through their teenage years while I was doing that and pursuing my career. Wow. Ended up going to school for a dual engineering degree, got my MBA as well while I was continuing working. I ended up being fairly successful in the, uh, I guess, the leadership arena. Over the course of time, I ended up developing into a corporate executive that was known for turning around businesses. So I spent uh, about 20 years doing that sort of stuff. The last 10 years, uh, I was sought after. I'd come in and turn around like an aerospace uh, manufacturing company or an automotive manufacturing company, high tech. No kidding. Anything of that. So that's what I would do is go into troubled businesses, fix them, sometimes turn around and prep them for sale. Mm -hmm. This poor kid from the sticks, you know, imagine that moving to this executive level, doing those sorts of things. At the same time, I've got a house with a white picket fence, two kids, my sisters have all moved on by that point in time. I've, you know, raised them into uh, adulthood. I'm still missing something in life. I owned a gym on the side. So I had a, a 9,000 square foot gym that I'd built a lot of the equipment in, specialized it. And I'm just like, I know that I should be doing more. And I was putting out educational content online as a fairly well-known strength athlete. And the stuff that I did was having such a huge impact, you know, around the globe, like people watching it, getting out of pain, change, like, and I'm like, I have something here mm -hmm. that I want to share and I'm, and I could be doing so much more. And that's what I loved in business. It wasn't doing the turnaround of the company. Turning around a company is about making change to people on an individual level, right? It's, you know, empowering people, getting them to step outside of what they think is possible and, and seeing that they can accomplish. You start doing this stuff one on one and that's what changes an organization. And so that's what I loved about it. And like, this is where I need to go. I need to as a whole, shift my entire life around helping people focus on development of resilience, mm -hmm. resilience of body, mind, soul, right? Mm -hmm. My professional expertise at this point is definitely on the physical nature of it. So in 2015, 
I launched Kabuki Strength with my business partner, uh, Rudy Cadlip. So we own the, the gym together and I was the first employee and it's grown pretty significantly from there. So it's right now we work with 99% of all major league baseball teams, about 90% really? of the rest of the NFL, NBA. We got Tour de France teams. We got, what does it you do? Like what's your sweet spot? Our sweet spot is definitely in the professional area is the MLB, NBA, and NFL. Teaching lifts or providing mobility or what, what specifically are you doing for these people, these teams? I have numerous patents on products I see. Uh, that improve biomechanics and they're based on the principles that we teach. So there's an education arm of the, the business. So I've got a number of coaches. They produce content on a daily basis. They travel and do seminars. They do private seminars for the teams and then the products. We have a manufacturing company here in Portland. I've got about 40,000 square feet of CNC equipment and, and automated cells uh, where we're producing the best biomechanically sound barbells and equipment in the world. And so these products are things that people have never seen before. So they're new in the industry, but they allow us to remove the, the negative stresses, the stresses that we can't adapt to by being forced into positions, being forced to work with the equipment that isn't built around how the body is meant to operate and allows us to be able to accommodate mm. for differences in lever links, mobility, training needs, and so on. So those products include the transformer bar, the only bar in the world that you can manipulate someone's spinal mechanics. How does that work? The transformer bar is a, the load shifts around. So actually what that does is the load actually stays over the midfoot. You're actually manipulating the spine, creating spinal uprighting. Mm -hmm. It's so I could mimic like a goblet squat. You've got a training background. You put that in someone's hands. What happens? We've got a better diaphragm to pelvis uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. We've got better engagement of the thoracolumbar musculature and uh, abdominal musculature to create better bracing mechanics. We've got, again, that alignment of diaphragm and pelvis coming into play. So it automatically gets people in better position. All of a sudden, their squats get better. So instead of trying to um, adapt your body to the load, the load will adapt itself to the body a little bit. So mine frees up and we can move this weight around in space instead of this one arbitrary spot. Yeah, yeah. And so now you can customize this for anybody's anybody's needs. You can change how we load the so you can think about it as a squat it's a squat bar that is like a machine at the same time. Yeah. Interesting. There's nothing like it in the world. Does it rest on the shoulders with the weight above it? It looks similar to a safety squat bar. Yeah. Executed better, but the distance from center and the rotation all allow you to shift that load around. That's fascinating. Very cool. And what's the Cadillac? The Cadillac bar is similar to like a multi-grip bar, mm -hmm. like a multi-grip or Swiss bar for pressing. I call it playground physics, but you walk into a playground and a teeter-totter, it's always sitting on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. And that is because the balance point is this infinitely perfect spot, which means you can't ever find it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a Swiss bar, or multi-grip bar, that's always going to be destabilized in your wrist and trying to go back and crush your face. So mine's curved, the weight drops down below the hands. So it's like a swing. Whereas a swing sit, automatically find center because center of rotation is above center of mass, playground physics. Right. A teeter-totter, they're both on the same plane, which means it's infinitely unstabilized. Have the same concept employed in our neutral grip deadlift bar, which has variability for width and height, but the neutral handle position that everybody hates, they don't know why they hate it, it's because it is on center center of mass, center of rotation. Ours is offset a little bit. Ours is open so you can walk into it. 
whole lot of other features that just make it better executed than anything else. The Q bell, the smarter dumbbell, we play with leverages that mm-hmm. allow that you to have the same weight in your hand, but you can make the load different. So imagine being able to train for like 15, 20 minutes, three, four different exercises and never having to stop. You know, your time under tension goes way up. The metabolic effect goes up. We can loop things together. We can do all sorts of things. I could actually change the force curve of a muscle. So instead of a curl being really easy at the bottom and not developing the force until you get up to like 90 degrees, we can change it so you can actually have similar force at the bottom matching the peak. There's tons of things you can do with it with leverages that nobody really understood before and implemented in a handheld way. Completely change it. The Kratos flywheel system is a pulley-based product built on inertia instead of weight really incredible. So anyway, that's what I do. I have a manufacturing company. I have design engineers. I have an education team that handles the coaching and education, all built around these principles around movement and loading to allow people to be able to develop physical resilience, limiting the amount of pain or dysfunction from that with Mm -hmm. the best biomechanically sound products out there. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. Is there any products that an individual can just go to your website and purchase or are they really geared toward the professional organization? These are ones everyone should be training with. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking kind of for myself because that dumbbell sells pretty damn cool. I'm going to go get one for Christmas. <laughs> Down to a 65-year-old grandmother that's never touched a weight in her life. That's awesome. You know, that's in back pain. Our stuff is used by the professional sports teams because those coaches understand the principles. So I had that the fastest and highest penetration mm-hmm. because I take it to them and they go, this, this is legit. You're only six years old. That's incredible, actually. And you get introductions. The next thing you know, you're working with 29 of the 30 major league baseball teams because our stuff is really foundational things, but reinvented, but it's for everyone. Is there anyone out there who's doing anything like you're doing in terms of the innovation? No, there is no other company that has a principle-based approach to creating products. Mm-hmm. They are looking at market analysis going, what sells? What can I create that is going to sell versus the lens that we look at it is through the training or clinical aspect of what's out there, how does it fit in these, the truly the principles of how the body works, how training should be done, how rehab should be done, and what are the gaps to allow us to be able to have that accomplished. And then all of a sudden, now you start seeing the gaps and the opportunities for products. So no one else is out there because there's education companies and there's equipment companies. Right Now, the equipment companies go copy us <laughs> because that's all they're good at. <laughs> people go, what's your market analysis for creating a new product? Well, I have none because they don't exist. Mm-hmm. I just know what needs to be out there. What are the gaps? What have I used? How am I going to accomplish things that no one else in the world's ever done? Well, I did it by using this stuff. Yeah. You know, leadership is one of my passions. And I'm actually went back to school to challenge myself to get my PhD in leadership at Pepperdine. So I just started that. I finished my first semester the other day. That was uh, interesting painful experience, (laughs) but it'll get better. (laughs) At any rate, so I noticed you're chief visionary officer and not CEO of your own company. And I got to tell you, 
I tried that with my company and it didn't work. I went through two CEOs and finally I'm back in as CEO. Maybe you're a better hirer or maybe your partner is the CEO. Is that why it's working for you? My partner is the CEO. And so uh, if he wasn't there, maybe I'd have some of the, those struggles. Obviously, in my role as visionary, I have a lot of influence on that. And that's my job. But I'm to free up what I need to have from a the creative side of things to being able to see this future. And then how do I create that into reality now? How do I invent products? How do I align services? How do we do this? Managing the day-to-day operations, I'm involved in it yeah. every day. But actually being the one that manages it, I did that before. That's what I did for 20 years. I'm really competent at it, but I can't do both. And I've tried. I cannot do it. Right. If you didn't have your partner, then you would just need an exceptional chief operating officer who basically did the same shit. You know what I mean? Allowed you to be visionary. That's kind of what I'm working on. We got to wrap up soon. This has been fascinating. But I'm curious about like what's the next 20 years hold for you, Chris? What's your vision for the future? How are you going to make an impact in the world beyond what you're already doing, which is pretty cool? I try to tie together everything that's been in my world into products and services that I offer. So I have launched a couple other companies, but I'm going to try to not do that anymore. Barefoot, B-E-A-R. So imagine a kid running around in the woods with bears. Right. (laughs) Shoeless. That was me. We make the best and minimalist footwear out there. And it's just absolutely incredible stuff. My supplementation is through Build Fast Formula. I'd like to start seeing these kind of wrapped together into more of an integrated fold. And then the future for Kabuki Strength is the integration of the clinical side as well, formally, uh, with what we do, the products, and then start the completion of the reinvented gym. And so imagine the reinvented gym paired together with the technology for the data acquisition that feeds into the coaching. So be able to look at barbell velocity, HRV, all those components to create one cohesive ecosystem that we can manage. And hey, we fall outside of the norm. Here's a clinical professional that actually understands exactly what you're doing, how to get you back to that as quick as possible because load provides that. So I want to create a complete ecosystem of education, training tools, and data as it relates to the technology and art of coaching, all the equipment that can reinvent this gym, again, based on accommodation for variability and mobility, leverages, training needs, as well as clinical care. I want to change the face of fitness all the way through with this integration with clinical care. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, might be a little hard to articulate all that in a, in a podcast. What that looks like? No, yeah, no, you don't have to. And, and everything that I'm working on are just little pieces. Like when I started Kabuki Strength, people were like, "Oh, you're a powerlifting company," and I'm like, "Yeah, I used to powerlift." And then we start doing more. Oh, you're a specialty barbell company, and then I come out with the soft tissue tools and dumbbells and a flywheel, and they're like, "No, we're a human performance company," and I'm building all the things that don't exist for me to create that bigger picture vision. They're not random things. They're not things because I think it's going to sell. They're missing pieces of this ecosystem. Largely, you can't, you can't create the whole picture because you have the vision, but the component parts don't exist yet. The technology is still to be developed, some by you and some by others. But holding that vision and driving toward it, you know, the pieces will start to fall into place. 
So a couple other things real quick. So my book, The Eagle and the Dragon, check it out. So it is an incredible story that was really helpful for anybody. It's written for the reader. I also have another book coming out next year on goal setting, execution, and leadership. Hit me up when you're ready to launch that. Either have you back on or we'll help you promote that. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to send you, if I have your email, a trailer for a movie that will be coming out early this spring as well, Grand Goals. So it's a documentary that was being filmed. Follow my social media. The trailer will be dropping here probably within the next month. What are your social media handles, Chris? The single best point of contact, so is to go to my website, just chrisduffin.com. Right. And there's links to Kabuki Strength, Barefoot, Build Fast, all my other stuff. And I will sign up for the email list on there. And then I'll send you the first half of my book for free. That's very cool. No strings attached, along with discount codes for all the companies. So exclusive ones and some exclusive like free educational content. So Chris Duffin, it's like muffin, but with a D. Okay. <laughs> all right. It's easier. Remember that way. Yeah. I love it. The handles, I don't know. Just type in Chris Duffin. I have the little blue check thing. The ones I interact on the most would be Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Awesome, Chris. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for everything you're doing. It's an incredible story. And uh, man, your work you're doing is fantastic. I can't wait to learn more. ChrisDuffin.com. I'm going to go sign up. I'll be on your newsletter, Chris. I'll make sure you have my email through my assistant, whoever set this up. Let's connect again when your next book comes out. So people need to know that how to do goal setting better and uh, learn from your methodology. So once again, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Have an amazing 2022, my friend. hoo You do the same. Thank you, sir. Wow, that was amazing. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. I absolutely love that interview. You are an extreme inspiration to me. I mean, your story, as you tell about in The Eagle and the Dragon, growing up homeless, living in tents and tree houses, killing rattlesnakes, dealing with the worst of life. That was fascinating. Yet you prevailed through it all. And your parents helped you basically become valedictorian of your high school through an intense program of reading and dialogue. You didn't have TV. Talk about an interesting story, living close to the earth, reading by candlelight, working with your hands, and you dominated, right? And so not only that, but then in the business world, you became an extremely effective CEO. You became an inventor. You're a power lifter. We talked about three things that you need to develop strength and stamina and also to accomplish anything in life, the right methods, the right tools, and the right mindset. Sounds like something I would teach. Show notes and transcripts will be on our website, markdevine.com, and there's a video going up on our YouTube channel at markdevine.com slash YouTube. On social media, I am markdevine at Twitter and at realmarkdevine on Instagram and Facebook. And of course, you can hit me up on LinkedIn if you want to connect, offer any ideas or potential guests or ask to be a guest yourself. If you want to be on our email list, go to markdevine.com. Special shout out to my incredible team, Jason Sanderson, Jeff Haskell, and Amy Jerkowitz, who put together this amazing show. Help me bring incredible guests to it and produce it week in and week out. I love reviews. They help people find our show. We've got over a 1,000 five-star reviews. Let's take that to 5,000 in 2022. So if you haven't reviewed it and you really find value in the show and the guests, then please do it. Like I said, it really makes a big difference. Also, refer your friends if you find this valuable. Well, I don't have to tell you, but the world is challenging right now. Man, with this pandemic and negativity and divided politics. You think everything was falling apart, but I have a different view. I think that's just the end of an era and we're moving into another and another area where empowered consciousness at scale was going to change the world. And that's our mission here, Mark Devine and, and also my business, Unveil Mind and Seal, that our mission is to scale positive consciousness 
bringing more courage and compassion in the world. And it's this that's going to push back against the negativity and the broken institutions of the industrial age. So won't you join me in that by first developing your own positivity and your own courage and opening your heart to become more compassionate, more inclusive. It all starts with us. We have to be the change we want to see in the world, like Gandhi says, and then we bring that to others through how we show up and through how we train our families and our teams. And then we work together, 100 million strong. That's our 2045 mission vision. So I really appreciate you being on that journey with me. And if you want to learn more about the Unbeatable Mind principles and how to really train yourself to be that world-centric leader and warrior, then you can learn more at markdivine.com or at unbeatablemind.com. Once again, thank you very much. Let's continue to make 2022 an amazing year. Hoo-dah, divine out.